The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Last week, I accidentally kind of went viral anonymously. I have a Peloton bike in my apartment, and one night I took a class with an instructor named Dennis Morton. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining me. My name is Dennis Morton, and welcome to Peloton. You're locked on He's very traditionally handsome. He's deeply uncool. His music taste is both informed and also very uncool. And I couldn't figure out why I like riding with him so much. Here we go. Way too fast. Or just the right speed. I also couldn't figure out who to talk to about it. So I wrote a post on Reddit, on this popular Peloton subreddit, and called it, What is it about Dennis? I explained him like this. It's the late 90s and someone's hot older brother is giving you a ride to school and he's playing Dave Matthews in his car and he starts crying to the lyrics. This is honestly a pretty embarrassing story, but comments started flooding in. It got 1,100 upvotes, over 300 comments. It was seen by almost 170,000 people. So I messaged a few of them and they graciously agreed to help explain what exactly it is about Dennis. Dennis is definitely my favorite, and he just feels like someone I would have gone to high school with. You know, maybe we would have worked together at McDonald's. He reminds me of, of my sister, who is like 15 years older than me and would pick me up from school. Yeah, he just has sort of a, a dorkiness about him. I'm not sure if there's another word that I could use. Someone who's maybe like still telling the inside joke from the office Christmas party two years ago. All of the Peloton instructors have catchphrases. If you don't squeeze your glutes, no one else will. But Dennis, he's saying, if I want the cadence to be 40 and you don't feel you can do 40, don't do 40. Early 50s male here. I told my wife I'm having an emotional affair with a guy named Dennis. She was concerned when she found me crying after one of my workouts with him. I love Dennis. Here's the thing. I'm doing this workout, just me getting on an exercise bike four times a week. But I keep thinking about these instructors like they're my weird caricature friends. And so are all these other people. That subreddit I was on has 270,000 members. And posts like the one I wrote come up almost every day. So what is going on here? Hey, 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 Peloton. What's good, you guys? Welcome to today's workout. My name is Tunde, and this is your 30-minute upper body bike boot camp. Let's get ready. You to know Peloton, right? It's a stationary bike with a screen that links you into a portal full of its own set of instructors and workouts. So you buy the bike and subscribe to the app where you can ride with them, but also do strength training and yoga and stretching. And they also have a treadmill. Recently, my colleague Patrick McGee wrote a piece for FT Weekend about Peloton and other remote fitness platforms like Hydro and FitCamp. As you probably heard, Peloton stock is very down, but Patrick thinks that the concept behind these products is here to stay, and that actually it might be our best hope for overcoming the basic human instinct to not exercise. We didn't evolve to do exercise unless it was pleasurable, fun, or rewarding. Mm -hmm. And like, if I just think of like the three attributes of a connected fitness, like the Venn diagram is a single circle there. Today, we talk with Patrick about how programs like Peloton manipulate our brains into biking and rowing and boxing and otherwise staying fit. 
And later in the show, you've seen them in airports. They promise to sell you the secrets to career success, but so very often they fail. Business books. Andrew Hill, our management editor, comes on to highlight some of the worst offenders. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. You've probably seen the headlines. Peloton stock is down. Peloton has stopped growing. Peloton might owe money to some of its employees. With more than 2.3 million subscribers and just 51 instructors, Peloton may be the world's most attended gym. And it's gotten a lot of coverage over the pandemic. At the start of the lockdown, its stock shot way, way up. People were stuck at home and articles described it as a miracle, the new gym of the post-office future. The drop came after supply chain issues disrupted deliveries, Peloton's new treadmill injured several children, but more importantly, Peloton stopped getting new users. It grew 172% during just one quarter in 2020, and now its growth is a lot more moderate. So did Peloton saturate the market, or are these programs still the wave of the future? Hello, everybody, what is up? My name is Sarah Moon. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Miami Beach, Florida. That's my colleague Patrick McGee, exercising on his connected rower in his home in the Bay Area. Patrick covers Apple and U.S. technology, and he's really into fitness. Peloton isn't the only company to offer at-home exercise combined with online classes. There's a weightlifting version, a boxing version, and Patrick recently wrote an essay arguing that, pandemic or not, this kind of fitness is here to stay. And we should embrace it. Just like we should embrace anything that gets us over the hump of inertia around exercise. I was honestly surprised that it worked for me. So I wanted to talk to him about it. Patrick, I loved your piece. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. So I thought that we could start by laying our cards on the table. I have a Peloton. I bought a refurbished Peloton in the depths of the pandemic. Do you have a Peloton? What do you have? I don't have a Peloton. I have something called the Hydro, which you could call the Peloton of rowing. So, you know, very similar idea. The the, the key difference, which I think is kind of nice, is your instructor is literally on a, a rowboat and they actually like travel around the world. It's cool because sometimes they'll be in Miami and like dolphins are literally like, you know, jumping in the background. And how often do you use it? I'm on a streak right now. So uh, I've done the last 26 days. I did a whopping 200,000 uh, kilometers in December alone, which, w- which was nuts. That was putting me wow. on at about 45 minutes a night. Patrick, as you have probably gathered, is an athletic guy. He played basketball as a kid. He runs marathons. But after he had his first daughter, it got hard for him to find time to work out. After his second kid, it became impossible. And so having a connected machine in my home was just like an absolute game changer. So Patrick is a convert. He loves to exercise. He loves having access to it 24 hours a day. But why the Hydro, which costs more than $2,000, plus around $40 a month to subscribe? Why not a cheaper rower? Why not a running app that's free on your phone or watch? The answer is something called connected fitness. What exactly is connected fitness? I would say it's a machine that is connected to the internet offering you classes. Mm-hmm. And so, right, the distinction would be that, you know, there used to be, let's say, something like Jane Fonda workouts on VHS and into like the DVD era of P90X and even YouTube videos, right? You can just yeah. follow along with classes. The difference with even YouTube, right, which you might think of as connected fitness, I, I, I don't, mm-hmm. is that your metrics are not being uploaded. Um, so there has to be a sort of two-way stream. There are now a dozen companies in the connected fitness industry, not counting several Peloton knockoffs. 
Tempo combines barbells and dumbbells with a camera, which measures your form and gives feedback. Tonal is a cable pulley system backed by LeBron James. Fight Camp is for boxing. It measures the velocity of your punch and lets you train against opponents. So when Patrick says connected fitness, he's talking about systems that do all of it. They combine instruction with feedback and community. That's what you're paying for when you sign up for membership after buying a machine. Nothing too serious, nothing too heavy. So here's how it works with Peloton, which I know best. A leaderboard shows your real-time stats next to others. You can high-five riders who are doing the same workout. If you're doing it live, the instructor might give you a shout-out. Even Stevens won. How's it going? I see you. Sassy asked, did I just see you? Then you might log on to Reddit or Facebook and talk to people who just did the same ride with you about the ride or how to calibrate your bike or what it is about Dennis. It's a fairly close approximation of a real-life workout online. And the fact that this combination works makes perfect sense to Patrick. There are a lot of skeptics, and he is not one. The arguments are that you just don't need this thing. Why would you subscribe to a rowing machine or a cycling machine when you can just do that without the subscription? So yes, absolutely, you can row or cycle or run without paying anything. Uh, The question is, do you? (laughs) And the answer is overwhelmingly no. So, you know, I cite this great study from the Mayo Clinic that basically says, you know, hey, we tried to look at like what percentage of Americans are healthy and they use pretty moderate criteria. So it's basically, you know, do you have a pretty healthy diet? Do you exercise three times a week? Do you not exceed the the, the healthy level in terms of the BMI body mass index? Mm -hmm. Um, And do you not smoke? And the result was less than 3% of the population meets that criteria. So, you know, I use my dad as an example. He, he has a spin bike. It's not connected. It's not Peloton. There's no subscription. And he gets on it diligently every day. And, you know, would I recommend a Peloton to him? Of course not. He doesn't need it. He's, he's doing great. He doesn't need that motivation whatsoever. But I think the vast majority of us do. The other argument against connected fitness is that it's too expensive. So, look, the hydro is the most expensive thing in my home. So I'm not saying it's an inexpensive device. It's $2,400. I did get it on a Black Friday sale for for $1,400. But if you finance it over three and a quarter years, I think, it's $39 a month. And the subscription is $39 a month. Mm -hmm. And if there's two of you using it, then your total cost for the financing period is about $40 a month. And then after that three years, when you fully own the device, it's about $20 a month each. Mm -hmm. It's hardly extravagant. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing about the expense is... If you have a Peloton and you're not using it or a Hydro and you're not using it, the fact that $40 a month is leaving your your bank account each month is actually sort of perversely uh, a motivational habit. If you Mm -hmm. are paying for a gym membership and not going, it's kind of sight unseen, right? (laughs) That's true. If your Peloton has literally become a coat hanger, I do think there's a little mental urge there that maybe you should get on the thing. Oh, 100%. My Peloton looks at me every day. (laughs) (laughs) It's relevant how much money and time we want to invest in fitness. Patrick cites this other study that I honestly found really shocking. Do you know how many American adults say they never exercise during their leisure time? More than 70%. Meanwhile, our doctors are recommending 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week or 75 minutes intensive. So why is it so hard to exercise? The answer is complicated and Patrick says it's ancient. So this evolutionary biologist at Harvard, Daniel Lieberman, argues that we evolved to be as inactive as possible. So sure, our bodies might 
be evolved to to run in 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 some way to go hunting, but absent the, an actual reason to run, we did not evolve to just burn calories for kicks. Right. right. <laughs> He's actually the one who wrote the essay called "Born to Run," very much making the argument that you know, well before we had tools, we hunted animals in packs. And we did so by doing long distance running. Yeah. And so what's really interesting about Daniel Lieberman is you would think, well, wait a minute, this is the guy that argued we were born to run. And now his latest book is saying we're not born to exercise at all. <laughs> isn't there a contradiction there? And there isn't, right? I mean, he's just saying the body evolved to do long distance running, but mentally, right? It was a life or death situation, yes. a kill or be killed situation. You know, we're, we're more evolved to sit and chill watching Netflix, right? Like to relax. <laughs> way more than we are to actually like go on a 10K run for the hell of it. Against this evolutionary backdrop, the results we're getting with Connected Fitness are really impressive. The average hydro user is on the machine every other day. And the Peloton stats, which are public because it's a public company, they maxed out at 26 times per month at the height of the pandemic and then cooled down to 20 times a month. Who do you know that goes to the gym 20 times a month? Yeah. Like, nobody does this. Peloton retains customers better than Verizon, Netflix, and Disney+. Plus. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. And, 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 you know, mind you, this is a company whose stock has fallen by 80% in the last 12 months. So how exactly do they do it? They trick us to exercise. Connected fitness programs gamify working out by giving you stickers and medals and gifts. Patrick is waiting to get a baseball hat in the mail from Hydro for rowing 2 million meters. At Peloton, the workouts are calibrated to boost your adrenaline at the perfect time. And the range of the workouts that are offered is meant to appeal to every kind of potential rider. It's something that journalist Amanda Hess has called the total curation of the mind. I learned a long time ago. Sweat is my best accessory. Let's take Robin Arsan. She's Peloton's lead instructor. She's an inspirational quote generator. She pushes you up a hill saying, you didn't get up today to be mediocre. She likes reggaeton and Burning Man. She has a masterclass on how it's never too late to level up in your life. For when you feel like you have nothing to celebrate. And then you look in the touchscreen reflection and remember whose daughter, son, or child you are. Who do you want to honor? Maybe it's not your parents. But let's leave a legacy that makes someone proud. Meanwhile, Dennis, he likes classic rock and surfing. And he tells you, I make suggestions, you make decisions. He's also curated, but he's meant to appeal to a totally different rider. Or one rider in two totally different moods. Versions of you. Patrick actually turned the tables on me on this one. Can I ask you, Lila? Yeah. One thing, so I'm not a Peloton user. I mean, I have used the machine. Uh, and I've used the, the classes. I would say on the whole, I'm not a huge fan of the sort of more culty aspects of Peloton. Like some of the personalities are really over the top, you know, to the point <laughs> of being a little annoying. And, sure. and so just because you use it four times a week, what do you think about those personalities? Um, there are, it's funny you ask this now. There are a lot of different personalities. And yeah, some of them work for me better than others. But I actually also find the conversation around those instructors part of the joy like it's it's almost like another form of entertainment for me oh. i watch tv i read books i listen to music i have opinions about all of those pop culture things and then peloton is another category of it peloton workouts have also been compared to sermons including by the company's founder john foley 
The parallel is clear. Religious services do combine music, instruction, community. That bike is their pulpit. Critics find that culty, and it kind of is. But Patrick was very willing to entertain the concept. Yeah, I mean, I'm an atheist. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe my disdain for religion it does have some role in why I'm so gung-ho about the community aspects of, of connected fitness. But to him, the how isn't what matters anyway. However they're doing it, Peloton and Hydro and others are helping us break through an aversion to exercise that's built into our very code by evolution. And that's fundamentally good, especially as our lifespans are increasing and we need to stay healthy for many more years. There's a podcast I like that one of my sources referred to me, a guy's named Peter Adia. He talks about the centenarian Olympics, um, meaning that when you're 100, he has a list of tasks that you should be able to accomplish. And so he says, like, on his on his rut days, he's thinking about, no, 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 I need to do this now so that five decades from now, six decades from now, I'm still able to, like, lift up my grandkids, right? right. I'm still able to take the groceries home. And it's really difficult to think like that, but... The biggest benefits of of exercise are not really coming to you for years, if not decades. Yeah, it's not immediate. And so, you know, what I think is nice about connected fitness is like it just brings forward that invisible health benefit. And it does so just in the ways that you're sort of addicted to your Facebook profile or whatever, right? Just like the little likes, the little comments from other people, the little medal for having a streak. I mean, I'm sort of embarrassed that like a little digital medal that no one else can even see like motivates me, but... I'd be lying if it didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what, Patrick, I've been thinking about this. Like there's so many ways in which social networks manipulate you into buying things or taking your your time or your focus or your energy or all these sort of upsetting things. And yeah. I know that these apps do that. Like I know that Peloton is doing it. The way they do spin-ups or the ways that they talk to you makes you feel good in the beginning, which gets you through the rest of it. And maybe that's a manipulation, but like, what a good thing to be manipulated. Exactly. <laughs> I think the political term is that it's it's a nudge, right? A, a, a nudge is like, you know, at your kid's school cafeteria, instead of having the pizza and lasagna being the first thing that the kid walks into, you just put the bananas and the fruit there. And, you know, the studies will show that, like, if that's just the first thing, when you have an empty plate, like, you're more likely to grab those items mm-hmm. and then you're more likely to eat them. And so, right. you know, all the better if, like, a company's doing this to get you more active. Like, why would anyone be against that? Like, the idea that this is controversial, connected fitness, I just, is, like, a ludicrous, ludicrous idea to me. Yeah. And also, you know, the language around exercise has for so long been guilt-based that you should, right? You should run X minutes, Y times a week, even though you won't. Like your body mass index should be below a certain amount, even though that might be a flawed way to even measure health. Yeah. That's what Daniel Lieberman, the Harvard evolutionary biologist, is great about, right? Like it's normal to feel guilty for not exercising, right? Because our society says you always should be, but you don't have any, any natural inclination to do so. One other thing, comparing Facebook being bad and Hydro being good may not make that much sense for much longer. Facebook's parent company, Meta, recently paid $400 million to buy a connected fitness company that uses 3D glasses to create a boxing environment. Patrick has been fighting bots while wearing the Oculus, which is Meta's proprietary 3D headset. Amazon is looking to get into connected fitness too. Apple is working on its Apple Fitness Plus. And as these big tech companies get involved, it brings up a lot of questions about data privacy. It's just another dimension with so many more data points from how hard we punch to the pattern of how we walk. But Patrick says connected fitness is likely here to stay and it might be about to explode 
whether Peloton is around or not. The competition is going to get absolutely intense. Yeah. And even if you're a billion-dollar company, that's you could be in the land of giants when trillion-dollar companies are making their moves. So, you know, I'm bullish on connected fitness writ large. I don't know that I'm bullish on any particular company mm-hmm. because the competition is just going to be so nuts. Yeah. Patrick, thank you so much. I'm gonna I'm leaving this feeling very smug about my my health span and my lifespan. So thank <laughs> you for that. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, it was a, a pleasure. Andrew Hill runs the FT's Business Book of the Year Awards. It means he has to read a lot of books. I seem to get to see most of the business books that are ever published. So, yeah, if we said that 400 or between 400 and 600 are submitted for the book award every year. And I tend to look at a proportion of those times 17 years, I think it is. You do the math, as they say. Business books cover a wide spectrum. You know the popular names. Four-hour work week, think and grow rich, the infamous lean in. They run the gamut from self-help to CEO biography to strategic how-to, and Andrew has seen them all. He's the FT's management editor, and after ingesting hundreds of books a year, he decided this year to make a top 10 list of a very specific type of business book. It includes titles such as Cozy Up to Your Coworker, The Me in Team, and my favorite, Kill Them, Leadership Lessons of the Tyrants. The thing that makes this list different from other top 10 lists is that these titles don't exist. This is the story of a man who's had to dig for great business books for years, taking a cathartic column to satirize the worst. If you thought for a second that cozy up to your coworker might be a real title, I don't blame you. It fooled a few of Andrew's editors when he turned in his piece too. Even the editors who worked on this had a momentary lapse where they uh, thought I was about to uh, defame some real authors <laughs> and sent it off to our in-house lawyer to be looked at. So um, I had to put a disclaimer in pointing out that these were imaginary examples, but drawn from <laughs> real life because I see all too many books that are actually like these ones that I invented. And that's Andrew's point. These business book trends are becoming more and more entrenched and predictable. There are great versions of all of them, but the majority really don't help you understand much about actual leadership. So let's talk through them. One is called The Me in Team. One is called Cozy Up to Your Coworker. So The Me in Team, well, this is a, this was a sort of spoof of, of, of books that are all too common, um, written by usually retired chief executives or, or um, entrepreneurs um, <laughs> frankly, I say written, but often they're done by a ghostwriter. But the worst ones, um, as I put it in this invented one, um, the outcome is this tone-deaf account of his heroic military service and subsequent seamless rise to the top, glossing over embarrassments, <laughs> lawsuits, profit warnings, and repeated rounds of redundancies. As I said, it's history written <laughs> by the victor. And then cozy up to your co-worker was a bit of a spoof of the 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 massive wave of books about purpose, empathy, diversity, inclusion, all of which are wonderful things that I've praised in other more serious columns, but some of the books about them are really quite terrible and they involve <laughs> a lot of hugs, which obviously as a Brit I'm I'm formally opposed to. There's also this other type of trend, 
Andrew's title is Square Pegs, Smash Your Strategy Into Shape. Well, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about uh, books that are written by um, consultants, usually large teams of consultants who get together and uh, cull the insights from the work that they've been doing uh, with clients and turn them into big strategy books, um, which it always seems to me um, are essentially the world's heaviest business card because they get distributed to the cl- back to the <laughs> clients. So do, they, do, do you actually meet with these consultants and they give you a copy of their book? Oh, yes. I'll name no names, but that has <laughs> happened and does happen on a regular basis. There's one, maybe we can call it a direct attack. And I'm afraid to say that some of the books that sell best are the books that uh, I am most likely to, to disparage. I had a tilt at the the whole idea of business fables in this column, inventing a book called Who Stole My Fable, <laughs> which I have to say is rather obvious veiled reference. It's Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson, possibly the number one book most likely to be propped up in an airport book kiosk. It was published in the 80s, and it uses a fable about mice to describe how people naturally act versus should react to workplace situations. One of the best-selling business books of all time, but which also triggered a wave of very bad fable-based, story-based business books. But they they (laughs) sell like hotcakes, particularly in the the American market. It's supposed to be kind of whimsical and fun, I find it quite cloying and and, uh, repellent, actually. So once you get past the book-length business cards, the buzzwords, the hero memoirs, what does Andrew think actually makes for a good business book? So original research is always interesting. I think when a CEO-written book comes off, um, it can be very, very uh, effective. Uh, One that I continue to recommend is Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, who was president of Pixar. Uh, And because it's based on Pixar, whose products and cartoons we know well, and because it is self-deprecating and points to failures of his, um, it's an effective way of of teaching people how to manage creative people, which, of course, as journalists, we're all interested in knowing about. Are there any other books that you would recommend that are like the best version of some of the categories that you're making fun of the worst version of? So in the category of books that are that, that are making business better, the, the 2019 winner of the Business Book Award, Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, which was about data bias, uh, it is, a, is a classic. You know, really, f- for a lot of the people, a lot of the judges, um, it was a real eye-opener. And, and for me, the number of areas in which product design and um, urban planning and uh, simple corporate strategy have been designed by men for men. Um, and, and that's those are the sorts of eye-opening stories. Andrew does have one specific tip as he reports on a more diverse group of leaders taking the reins than ever before. The more diverse your team is, um, the better you're going to be as a leader. You know, because the issue is so complex, because managing organizations is so difficult, you can't do it alone. And that's why I have a kind of beef, I suppose, about the CEO written memoirs. Mm. Um, It's that it's implying, and I admit that we as journalists are complicit in this, it's implying that this is a one person job and it must inevitably always be a team job. And the wider you draw, the, the more widely you draw your 
your leadership insights from other people who are different from you, the more likely you are to get the right answers to these complex questions. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. Here's to a 2022 with fewer bad business books and more good ones. Don't send me the bad ones if you're thinking about it. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week is very exciting. FT Weekend editor Alec Russell is bringing us to Albania for lunch with writer Leia Epi of the acclaimed memoir, Free. We also go to Miami and find out why it's the most important city in America. It may or may not include an interview with A-Rod. Keep in touch. I love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can find a lot of behind-the-scenes content and culture questions on my Instagram, including this week, all your thoughts on Peloton. If you want to read the FT, I have some great special offers specifically for listeners of the show, like a month-long trial and half-off a digital subscription. Those offers are all at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. It's in the show notes as are links to everything mentioned today. Please do follow and subscribe to FT Weekend. Tell your friends about it. Recommend it on your social feeds and tag us. All that stuff really helps support the show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley, Manuela Saragossa, and Topher Forges are our executive producers. And we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. Thank you also to everyone who spoke to us from the Peloton Cycle subreddit, including Mark Hoban from New Hampshire, Leslie from Atlanta, Jeff Heisen from Silver Spring, Shane Huang, Alicia Sullivan, and Wayne Dunlap. Thanks also to Michael Bridges of the Positive Peloton Facebook group. Thanks as ever for listening. We will find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com.